0: really shock you. It appears to be a very straightforward passage of Scripture, but uh, rightly understood, it ought to uh, make our spines tingle if we really understand what, what the Apostle is, is saying. I want to begin reading with verse 1 and read through verse 11. If any of you has a dispute with one another, dare he take it before the unrighteous, uh, dare he take it before the unrighteous for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one believer goes to law against another and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now this passage is very closely linked uh, linked to uh, chapter 5, which precedes it, where Paul is concerned with this matter of of an incestuous brother. Uh, This man was uh, sleeping with his uh, father's wife the way Paul puts it, which would suggest that uh, she was his step stepmother. And uh, the church was doing nothing about it. They were simply glossing over this affair. And Paul, uh, Paul speaks to it very uh, directly. He says, you must do something about this brother. You don't uh, have any business judging those outside the church, he says, but you must judge those that are inside the church. It's obligatory. It's not... Merely something that you can do, it's something that you must do. People from time to time ask me uh, about Jesus' statement, Judge not, that you be not judged. It seems to be in conflict with these passages where uh, Paul and others, uh, other of the apostles call us to, uh, uh, to moral discriminations and judgments, but really it's not at all in, in conflict. The same Lord that said, Judge not, said if your brother sins rebuking. What Jesus was talking about when he referred to judgment was uninformed judgment, impulsive, uh, premature, uh, biased, censorious judgment. But uh, we are called upon uh, to assess uh, human claims of truth and, and beauty and goodness. Uh, if someone comes to me and says that 2 plus 2 is 5 and insists upon that, I I have to say, well, no, that's that's not true. Uh, given a, a base ten uh, number system, two plus two is is four, unless you're Einstein. Uh, as Einstein said at a family reunion, all things are relative, and uh, <laughs> that may be so. But uh, given uh, the number system that we were we were taught in school, two plus two is four. If someone comes to me with a very uh, ugly piece of uh, sculpture. And, and they tell me that's beautiful, then I, I, I can say, no, I, I don't think that's beautiful at all. It's ugly. You know, we, we can make those, uh, those judgments. But uh, what Jesus is prohibiting are these harsh, premature, censorious judgments where we judge people's motives. Uh, but um, constructive judgment that's based upon an appropriate standard, and in our case as Christians, the standard of the Word of God is entirely appropriate. And uh, this is an act. Uh, this is an action that is incumbent upon us. It's something that we're commanded to do. Now Paul deals with the issue of incest in the church, and then he moves on to another matter within the church that called for judgment. It's fairly easy to to construct, uh, uh, reconstruct the situation. Uh, uh, there were two brothers. We'll call them Brother A and Brother B. Brother B had somehow swindled Brother A out of some money or some property. So Brother a sued brother b that 's the American way you know you just bring suit and and uh, uh, this was going on and and Paul is aghast in fact he 's indignant it 's very difficult to translate the first line of, of verse uh, uh, of chapter one into good English, but basically what he says is, how dare you how dare you do this now uh, the reason he he says it 's inappropriate for Christians to work out their disagreements in uh, in, in, in the law in the law in in a law room law court courtroom courtroom, courtroom that's the word I'm trying to use in a courtroom uh, is because uh, is not because Paul trivialized Roman justice he didn't he utilized it uh, I mentioned uh, uh, as I when I introduced the book of First Corinthians that uh, uh, Paul, that the law was very useful for the Christians in Corinth because Gallio le- legitimatized Christianity made it an authentic religion. And that precedent held uh, until Nero's time. So the church had a great deal of freedom as a result of Roman justice. And uh, here in Western, uh, our Western culture, our jurisprudence is based pretty much on Roman law. So there's a, there was a great deal of fairness and equity in, in the Roman system, and it can be utilized. So, but so Paul is not saying there's anything wrong with uh, secular law courts. Nor is his primary concern here the shame that might be brought upon the church. He expects the church to experience shame. In those days, uh, the bema or the judgment seat was in the marketplace where every ga- everyone gathered around. And today, of course, the media brings uh, what happens in the courtroom right into our living rooms. The issue here is not, is not the embarrassment and shame that it brings upon the church. So that's often the reason that that's, uh, that's seduced here for, for Paul's arguments. Not that at all. It's rather that Christians have a different way of dealing with disagreements than the world does. Ray Steadman used to have a little poem that he quoted. It goes like this. To live above with saints we love, that would be endless glory. To live below with those we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> now, it's tough to live with one another here, and we do get crosswise with each other, and we have conflict, and, and we, have, we have to work out that conflict. And Paul is not saying here that, that Christians shouldn't have conflicts. They do. We live in a fallen world, and we ourselves are fallen creatures, and we're going to run afoul of each other every once in a while, and that's okay. We have to, we have to work out those conflicts. But what Paul is saying is that there's a way to resolve conflict internally that's much better than you're going to find out there in, in the world. Now, here's the way he argues. He first addresses himself to the church in the first six verses because uh, uh, basically what he's saying is shame on you for letting this happen because the church was permitting this to go on. Then he addresses himself to uh, uh, the plaintiff, the one who's complaining, the one who's been wronged. And then he addresses himself to the defendant. Now, here's what he says to the church. He uh, uh, raises a couple of rhetorical questions. He says, don't you know? That the saints will judge the world. If you're to judge the world, aren't you competent to judge one of these trivial cases? What he's saying is that someday God is going to come and he's going to judge the world properly and we're going to be associated with him in that that judgment. We keep wondering why God doesn't run the world right. He isn't trying to today. But the Bible keeps saying to us, just wait. Just wait. One of these days God's going to take off the wraps and then he's he's going to set everything right. And Paul, as Paul puts it in Second Timothy, if we have endured with him, we shall reign with him. In other words, if we have attached ourselves to him and uh, acknowledged his lordship, uh, then we belong to him. We've been regenerated, and we're going to sit on thrones with the uh, with the apostles and the prophets, and we're going to judge the world. And Paul is saying, look, if you have wisdom to judge the world, certainly you can take care of one of these trivial uh uh, conflicts within within the fellowship and then he enlarges the argument he says you're going you're going to judge angels one of these days uh, god will sit in judgment on 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 the angelic world the good and evil angels and he's going to set that uh, order of creation right and we'll be associated with him in that in that judgment and paul again argues if you can judge angels surely you can judge a bunch of, of uh, human beings that are having a, a difficult time, uh, uh, time here. Now, what what he's saying is that we, we have wisdom to deal with, with, these, with these issues. Remember in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. Now, it doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It comes in Scripture. If we're men and women read the scriptures and take them seriously and make them a part of our life and our and our thinking, order our lives according to scripture, then we have wisdom enough to deal with any problem that develops within the fellowship. More wisdom, as the writer of Proverbs puts it, than your teachers have. More wisdom than the attorneys have out there. More wisdom than the juries have. More wisdom than the judge has. More wisdom than the Supreme Court has. Because we have another way of looking at at all of these issues. We have the mind of Christ to govern us. Uh, Several years ago, I was sitting in our living room, and our oldest son, Randy, came in and picked up a Reader's Digest that was laying on the coffee table, and he opened it. And and in that Reader's Digest was a test that was uh, given to people trying to get into MENSA, you know, the Organization for People of Extremely High Intelligence. There was a kind of a sample test that you could take to see if you could qualify for MENSA. So Randy says, hey, Dad, I want to give you a test. So he reads off the first question, and I snapped off the answer just like that. He was really impressed. And uh, then he read off the second question, which was this very complicated mathematical problem, and I just answered it just like that. And Randy shook his head and looked at me, and then he read off, he got about halfway through the third question, and he started to laugh, and he looked at me, and he said, you got to the Reader's Digest first, didn't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I did, and I read all the answers. <laughs> I was ready for you. Well, he knows me well enough to know that uh, I don't qualify for Mensa, but uh, uh, I'd, I'd read the book. See. I, I had the wisdom to answer those questions. That's that's what Paul is saying. See. It's all there in the book. And we have the capacity to work these things out. So he says, what what you ought to do, <laughs> a bit of irony here, he says, pick the church dunce. That's really what he means when he says, pick the person who is least esteemed within the body and uh, ask him to be a third party to work out one of these disputes because the church dunce that is a man or woman of the word has more wisdom than you're going to find out there in in the world. And uh, he says, look, isn't there at least one wise man, one wise woman that can sit down and, and work this thing out? See, that's the way we ought to solve problems within the body of Christ. If you're having trouble with a brother or sister in this body, don't take it out there for judgment. Find one wise man or woman to sit down with you and, and work it out. See? Don't bring suit against that person. Don't damage them in that way. Don't damage yourself. As he goes on to say, you, even if you win out there in the law courts, you've lost. It's a Pyrrhic victory. Don't, you know, don't, don't do that. Just work, you, we can work these things out, he's saying. Now, that's his word to the church. And I think as a church we ought to give some serious thought to some kind of uh, Christian uh, system of advocacy and, and uh, uh, uh exactly what to call it. Uh, put together some mediators, people that can serve in this capacity who are available to help you work out problems. I want us to do some serious thought about, about that because that's the, that's the biblical way. Now he addresses himself to the plaintiff, the one who's been damaged, the one who is uh, complaining, the one who is uh, bringing uh, this uh, suit. He says, look, why why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated?" Now, see, that, that's the kind of wisdom that you're not going to hear out there in the courtroom. They're not going to say to you, it's all right to, to to, to, lose. It's all right to suffer loss. It's all right to be defrauded of your money. It's okay to have a piece of property taken, taken away from you. It's all right. It's just, it's just, it's just money. You know, that's the, that's the medium of exchange down here, but it doesn't have any eternal value. It's just a piece of dirt that you're fighting over. It's a piece of property. It doesn't amount to anything. The, the, the most valuable commodity in, in, in this world is people. That's the only eternal commodity. That's the only thing that's going to go on forever. It's far better to allow yourself to be cheated out of, out of some money in order to minister to someone else and, and, and to their needs. So it's okay to suffer loss. See? See, we, we get all mixed up. We, we begin to buy into the world's system of values. And we think what really matters is what we amass here. It's what we, it's what we pile up in this earth that, that matters. It's just paper money. see. As Chuck Swindoll is, is fond of saying, I never saw a U haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. <laughs> Our family used to be uh, Monopoly freaks, and we used to play Monopoly. We used to have these Monopoly games that would go on for like weeks. And, and, and I only won one Monopoly game in the whole time that we ever, ever played, but I won big. I, I was a billionaire. I had three or four hotels on Park Place. But the day came when we had to fold up a Monopoly set, put it away, and I came back to reality. You know, I didn't drive a Rolls-Royce. I drove a junkie Honda, and, and, I, and you know, I lived in a very ordinary house. I didn't have hotels. And, well, you get the point. One of these days we're going to stand before the Lord with all this paper money in our hands, and God's going to say it's a wonderful performance, but now the Monopoly game is over. And we're going to get down to reality. See? We, we, we pave our streets with that, with that junk here. And we've got to get that straight, see, because the world is telling us that we only go around once. And if you don't go for the gusto here and you don't get it big here, then you're not going to get it. But, you see, we're not going to take it with us. What we are going to take with us are the souls that we've invested in. That's why Jesus said, make friends with, with mammon, so that when you get to heaven, they'll greet you. In other words, invest your money in people. Invest your money in, in what God is... What, Is doing within his kingdom to to build the lives of people. Don't don't worry about the here and now, see? Because it's all going to pass away. And once we have that perspective, we can can look at a situation and say, well, okay, so I'm being defrauded. Big deal, you know. One of these days, I'm going to move into another sphere of reality where this this doesn't matter. I have a friend that actually took that step. Um, He, he, uh, Fell encroached on his property, he put a fence ten feet on, onto his property. He went over and complained. He said, Look, this is my property. The guy said, Tough darts, that's where my fence is, this is where it's going to stay. Turned out the fellow was a Christian. And they tried to work it out, and they even brought in a third party to work it out, and they couldn't work it out, so my friend just said, Ah, you can have it. It's just a piece of piece of ground. So he finally gained title to it by adverse possession. It was his land. He never said another word about it. it just just piece just a piece of dirt. That's all. Why get all hot and bothered over a piece of ground when a person's life and their spiritual well-being is at stake? And that's what I say you're not going to get that kind of justice out there in the world. They're not going to tell you that. that this is a wisdom that comes from above. Now, he says to the, uh, the one we would call the defendant, the one who's being sued, he says, look, you cheat and you do wrong. I'm reading verse uh, 8. You yourselves cheat, and you do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Now, he uses a plural here because I think he's talking to others within the church. It wasn't just this one individual. He's generalizing from this. But I want you to notice how he eases into this argument. Slips up on our blind side. Verse 9. And we often don't connect what, what follows with what precedes, but it's clearly connected. The word that's translated wicked here in the NIV is the same word as the noun form of the verb that's translated do wrong in verse, verse 8. You cheat and you do wrong. Do you not know that those who do wrong, we could say wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? You understand what he's saying? If you can cheat your brother and cheat your sister, and you feel no remorse over it. And God is not speaking to your heart about that, and you don't feel guilt, and you're not willing to, to repent of that sin and, and do what's right, you may not be a Christian. That's what he's saying. Now, he's not saying that if you do that, you might lose your salvation, because I'm convinced the scripture does not teach that you can lose your salvation. But he is saying that there are people who look very good for a long period of time and who seem to be Christians. They go under the guise of Christianity, but they have a heart that's never been submitted to the lordship of Christ. And uh, that uh, that uh, failure in lordship will begin to show up in, a, in, a, in time. And often it will show up in something just like this, an unwillingness to repent of, of some sin in their life that's deep-seated and long-lasting. Nor is he talking about sin that we might fall into. He's talking about sin that we cling to. Sin that we defend, that we justify. And he's saying if you can go on living in clear violation of the will of God, you are probably not a Christian. So you better take a good, hard look at yourself. It's not that Christians merely have a higher standard, though that is true. It is not that Christians merely want to be righteous. That's not the point. It's it's really what John is saying. He who is born of God does not keep on sinning. If you have the life of God in you, if I have the life of God in me, that life bubbles up and it torments us when we're living in sin. We cannot live with it. We have to deal with it. And if I can go on and just uh, sin with impunity without any thought of, of judgment or, or without any guilt, then there's a pretty good chance that I don't belong to God at all. And we have to take this very, very seriously. He who is born of God does not continue on in sin. Unless we miss the point, he, uh, he drives it home. Notice what he does. Don't be deceived. That's one of Paul's favorite comments. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't thumb your nose at God. Sooner or later, our disobedience will catch up with us. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers. You see what he's doing? These, he says, will not inherit the kingdom. Well, what was this fellow doing? He's swindling his brother. He says, look, the immoral will not get in into the kingdom of God. The fellow says, oh, I know that. Homosexuals, those that are practicing homosexuals who defend it and justify it as a lifestyle, will not. they're not members of the kingdom of God. Adulterers won't make it. Thieves won't make it. Oh, that's right, that's right. And neither will swindlers. Well, all I did is just, you know, slightly defraud my brother. I just kind of, I just cut a small moral corner here. Paul says, if you can justify that, if you can defend that, if you can protect that point of view, you're probably not a Christian. Now I want to look at this list. Paul loves these lists. He has seven of them in, in the New Testament. Uh, this is one where he really rings, rings the change. You can see what he's doing. He's, he's moving in on this uh, fellow, personalizing this, this man's disobedience. But I think all of us need to look at this list in terms of our own activity. Because I believe we will find ourselves, all of us, somewhere in this list. I know I do. And if you're honest with yourself, you will too. He says, first of all, I want you to understand that, that the sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's Paul's word for fornication, which he uses in different ways. He'll use it a bit later in the chapter. We're going to talk about uh, Paul's uh, teaching on God and your body next, next week. There he uses the word fornication, which is this word in a general sense of all kinds of illicit sexual immorality, illicit sexual conduct, immorality. It comes from a Greek word that means to buy and sell. Basically, uh, fornication is a sellout. Uh, You sell yourself too cheaply. Uh, it, it, It has to do, in this context, where it's in a list of other sexual sins, with sexual intercourse between people, neither of whom are married—single people, divorced people, neither of them married—but they're sleeping together, or someone who just sleeps around. Now, I want you to understand what Paul is saying. Anyone can fall into that sin. Sin is very seductive. We we all have infinite capacity for for self-rationalization. And, And self justification. Anybody can be gulled and deceived and fall into fornication. Anybody. But we can't defend it. That's his point. We can't justify it. We can't protect it as a lifestyle. So if your lifestyle is one of fornication, if you're constantly involved sexually with another man or another woman or a series of men and women, you have to ask yourself the question Am I really a Christian? Uh, The next term that he uses is idolatry, which, of course, is to do with the worship of idols. But really what he's talking about is the worship or devotion of anything other than God. Now, all of us, at one time or another, fall prey to idolatry. We We momentarily love something, or even for a shorter period of time, we're more devoted to something than we are to Christ. But if you can justify the pursuit of the almighty dollar... If that is your main focus in life, if that's what you love more than anything else in the world, if that's what your whole life is devoted to, then you have to ask yourself the question, am I a Christian? Probably not, because God won't let you live with that. He will haunt you. He will hector you. He will hassle you until you respond to him if you belong to him. He loves us too much to let us devote ourselves to something that's just going to burn up someday. Nor adulterers. Now that's that's Paul's term for for sexual intercourse between people where one or the other is married. You're involved with a married man. You're single. You're involved with a married man, or you're, you yourself are married and you're involved with a single woman or single man. That's sin. That's adultery. Uh, prior to 1955, adultery was was illegal in the United States, and now it's uh, proffered as uh, you know a way to spice up your. Your marriage, a lot of changes in the last few years, if we're honest with ourselves. A lot of adultery going on. And I just want to say this is Paul's viewpoint, this is not mine. If you're involved in an affair with a married man or a married woman, that is sin. And if you can justify it and defend it, and if you're not willing to repent of it, then you may not be a Christian. You need to take a good, hard look at your relationship to God. Now, now he, he, he turns to another form of sexual sin, which, uh, the NIV translates male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. Actually just two words. The word that's translated male prostitutes here is, is, is the word that means soft, malakoi. It's, uh, Jesus actually used that word once when he talked about those who lived in kings' palaces and wore soft garments. It means soft, effeminate. And, and it was used in the ancient world, classical Greek period, and during the time the New Testament, was written of these young, these beautiful young boys that were the lovers of older older men. They were called Molokoi, or soft. And Nero, uh, who wasn't on the throne at this time, but who later came to the throne, married a young boy, his name was Sporus, in a wedding ceremony. Nero was bisexual. As a matter of fact... Of the 14 emperors, first emperors of Rome, 14 of them were bisexual. They often married these young boys. And Nero even married an older man, Pythagoras, was not the mathematician, but it was much after his time, a man by the name of Pythagoras that he married. And when Nero died, his successor, Otho, took Pythagoras as his wife and considered her a widowed wife. And uh it's talking about these uh, men who make themselves beautiful and soft and effeminate and, and who are the passive partners in a homosexual relationship. The word for homosexual offenders uh, is this one word. It basically means men in bed together. It's a composite word made of the word man and the word bed. And I just want to say that homosexuality is sin. We're living in a world where that's being denied today. No one knows any longer what preferences are, are preferable. See? But homosexuality is sin. The Bible says it is. All forms, not just homosexual rape. Certainly, that's that's sinful and wrong. And not just uh, promiscuous homosexuality. That's that's wrong. But also so-called homosexuality, monogamous homosexuality. Two men in love. That's that's wrong. It's sinful you have to realize how radically the world has changed in in my lifetime and, and actually within the last 30 years. How radically the world has changed. For over 1,900 years, the, the church said unequivocally that homosexuality was sin. In 1968, the Metropolitan Church started in, in New York. I was working with students at the time. They rapidly set up a branch in San Francisco these were Orthodox Christians they believe everything that you and I believe about the Bible except what the Bible teaches about homosexuality and they justified it as a legitimate Christian lifestyle in 1974 the United Methodist Church began to ordain homosexuals into the into the ministry in 1976 the Episcopal Church followed suit in 78 the Presbyterians began to ordain, Uh, homosexuals into the ministry. And about the same time, I remember reading a report by the Church of England, which was one of the most astonishing documents I ever read in my life. On the one hand, they roundly condemned homosexuality, and at the same time, they admitted homosexuals into the ministry. Strange form of double speech. All I'm trying to say is that things are radically changing for us, and they are changing rapidly, and we need to be aware of it. There isn't any moral middle ground anymore. And if you and I are going to take this kind of stand, which we must take, though we must take it very lovingly, very gently, very kindly, but we must be very sturdy and very courageous, homosexuality is a sin. And we do people no favor when we tell them it's okay, it's all right. I don't have time to delve into this because this is really not a passage about homosexuality, but because it's such an issue in our minds, I want to say one or two things, and I'm going to talk more about it next week. On your own, look at Leviticus 18, and it's a series of sexual uh, sex acts which are proscribed, prohibited in, in, in the law. It starts out with incest. It is a sin for a man to sleep with his daughter. And so there'll be no doubt, uh, Moses spells it out, every other form of, of incest that, that's sinful, it's wrong, it's harmful, it destroys human life, it destroys the family, it destroys society. To sexually abuse your daughter is sinful. Sexual activity with an animal, bestiality, is sinful. Spells it out no question about that. Adultery is sinful. Child abuse, you should not offer your child to Moloch. He says, child abuse is sinful. It's wrong. And then he says, a man shall not lie with a man as he lies with a woman. Now, people in the Metropolitan Church are saying today, well, that's talking about idolatrous, uh, you know, homosexuality that's attached to idolatry and, or, or homosexuality that is, uh, is promiscuous, but he's not talking about uh, sex where there's real love. Man loves a man, woman loves loves a woman. That's not what Moses is talking about. They won't wash in that passage, because if you look at it carefully, you've got to apply the same criterion to every one of those acts. You could say, if you really love your child, it's all right to molest him or her. If you really love uh, the person that you're having an affair with, it's all right to have adultery. See? It just doesn't wash. And then you turn to Romans 1, and Paul says that homosexuality is the most degrading thing you can do to yourself it's not the worst sin in the world spiritual pride is the worst sin in the world but it is the most degrading dehumanizing thing you can do you just destroy yourself you just begin to unravel he says men with men committing shameful acts women with it's only place in the, in the new testament where where lesbianism is is considered women with women committing shameful acts he says it's not, you know it's against created order it's a part of a fallen the fallen order it's not right it's wrong, and it just erodes away the fabric of, of society. It's interesting, Will Durant pointed out long ago that the two marks of a degraded society are immorality and violence. And Paul says in, in Romans 1 that, that really everybody knows about God. Everybody knows about God. You can't even curse convincingly without using God's name. You know, it's a, it doesn't work to curse in the name of natural selection or something. You know, you gotta, you gotta, everybody knows about God. But everybody suppresses that knowledge about God. Apart from the grace of God, we all push it out of our minds. And so God lets us have what we want. And we begin to disintegrate. And one result is immorality, which he spells out not only in terms of heterosexual sin, but also homosexual sin and violence, terrible violence. Boy, you, know, you, you look around our world today, that's what, that's what we're seeing. That's what characterizes America today is sex and violence. And even Durant, who, who is not a Christian as far as I know, says that, that's a sign of a society that's just disintegrating and, and falling apart. It's what Paul said in the first century. It, 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 it is a violation of creative order. It create, produces tremendous chaos in, in society. And so we as Christians have got to take a stand. We have to be loving and gracious and kindly, and we have to distinguish between the sinner and the sin. God loves the sinner, and he hates sin. Our Lord hung out with prostitutes and, and immoral people, and I assume with homosexuals because there were a lot of homosexuals in those days. He, he loved them as people, but he always confronted their sin. Right? Believe me, we do people no favor when we excuse what they're doing. There are a number of efforts these days to excuse people's gayness on the basis of hereditary elements, and uh, as you may know, there are a couple of studies. Uh, those of you that are scientists that have looked at those will probably have to say they're they're badly flawed. They're not really good studies at all. But but even if even if it's so, even if it's true that there's some genetic flaw that that results in homosexuality, just as, it, as there may be some genetic flaw that predisposes people toward alcoholism. I can't judge whether that's true or not, but there are some studies that seem to indicate that. It's all part of our fallenness, and, and we don't have to fall in with our fallenness. We don't have to move against God's created order. There, there is a way out that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. Let's, let's proceed on because this passage gets even more convicting. Paul says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor, nor thieves. Thieves. Nor the greedy. That's the word for, for covetous. I suspect Paul may have had in mind this uh, the gentleman who was, uh, who was defrauding his, his brother here. Because that's usually what's behind fraud. But I think he may have also had in mind the brother who was defrauded because often our desire to redress that wrong is driven by covetousness and greed. Remember that incident where Jesus was talking to the crowds and uh, someone shouted to him out of the crowd, make my brother share the inheritance with me. And, and Jesus said, wait a minute, who asked me to be a judge between you? His point is not that he, he didn't want to take that role. It's that this is something that need to be, needs to be worked out within the, Within the family. Later in the same chapter, he says, you know, if you have a problem with your, with someone, you work it out before he takes you to the to the judge. Because God's going to exact the last penny, whether the judge does or not. Yeah, that's, that's his point. He says, I don't, I'm not going to get mixed up in this family matter. This is something you can work out. Then he turns to the whole crowd. And here are these two men over here. They're squabbling over the inheritance. And he says to the whole crowd, beware of greed. And what he does is what he always does. He just scoots right down to the bottom line, and he points out that what usually drives us in, in, in a suit of this nature when we're trying to redress some wrong is not the, the quest for justice, but greed. It's avarice, covetousness. So Paul says, look, if you have a problem with greed, you need to repent of that. And, and, and if you don't, you, you may not be a Christian nor drunkards. If you're an alcoholic, you may be an alcoholic because of something that happened to you in childhood. It may be the result of heredity. It may be the the result of environment. It may simply be an addiction or habituation that that was generated out of a one-time thing. And I can't speak to that issue, but I can say that if you, you are an alcoholic, that's sin. And you need help. You need to face the... The, the sin itself, call it what God calls it, and get help for that condition. There is help available for you out there. Because to go on as, as, a, as a drunkard and not confess it, not face it, not do something about it, is to indicate that you may not be a believer. Not drunkards, not slanderers, gossips. Oh, my goodness, does he ever step on our toes there? If we're talking about others, we're bearing false witness, we're speaking against others and slandering them, and we can justify that as a lifestyle and not feel guilty when we do it and not try to redress that wrong, not ask for forgiveness when we've spoken against someone. may not be a Christian, Paul says. And then finally, swindlers. This is his bottom line. This is what brings it home to the to the man that uh, is in view here. Now I want to say again that Paul is not talking about people who fall into these sins because we all from time to time are guilty of one or more of these, of these sins. And I don't want you to walk out of this place feeling that, that somehow because you've committed one of these acts that you're disqualified in God's eyes. He's wonderfully forgiving. He's wonderfully gracious. We're not talking about sins that, that we stumble into, to use Paul's word. We're, we're talking about hardcore rebellion. We're talking about those who, who clearly perceive that what they're doing is a violation of God's will and who defend it and justify it and cling to it and who will not repent of it, you see. But he is saying that if we can live with any of these sins, that we probably do not have the life of God in us. So what must we do? Well, first of all, we must recognize the, the condition. Call it what it is. The word for confession means basically to say the same thing as, and uh, confession is saying the same thing that God says about our sin. If you're, if you're hooked on pornography, you need to say, That is sin. If you're living with someone who's who's not your mate and, and you're living in a fornicatious relationship, you need to say that is sin. If you're gay, you, you just have to say that is sin. If you're swindling someone, if you've been dishonest, if you you have a lifestyle of lying and cheating and wronging others, then you need to take a good hard look at that and say that's sin and then repent of that evil. Repentance means to change your mind about it. Going in this direction, change your mind and you go in that way. You may or may not feel any emotions when you make that change, but it's just recognizing that what, what God says is right and what I'm doing is wrong and I'm going to follow God no matter what it costs me. Now it may be because of your background or something that's that's genetic that, that you're going to struggle with this condition to the to the end of your of your days. I I think one of the most difficult things for a homosexual is to change their sexual orientation. I know gays that that have never had any interest in people in the, of of the opposite sex. They're always attracted to the same same sex. And my word to you is is uh, to do what other what heterosexual singles have had to do, and that is just just live a single celibate life. That may be the only answer for you. You you may not be able to change your orientation, but you can change the acts, the actions. It's the homosexual actions that are sinful. You may not be able to do anything about the proclivities and the tendencies and the urges, but you can can begin to do something about, about the acts, see? As I say, it's no different than a heterosexual single who decides to be single and celibate. Somehow we've gotten the idea that if we aren't sexually satisfied, we'll never be satisfied. That's not true. Look at our Lord, who throughout the 31 years of his life was single and celibate and fully satisfied. Oh, there may be pain, and loneliness, the urges are still there, but there is substantial satisfaction in this world. And as we're going to see in a couple of weeks when we, when we look at, at, at Chapter 7, celibate life is a gift from God. People have, have time, discretionary time and money and energy to invest in, in, in the kingdom of God, just as our, as our Lord did. So I want to read something to you. I, a friend of mine who is a physician passed this on to me. It, it came from uh, a physician who, who is gay, Let's read part of it. He said, As soon as I saw this particular patient lying on his bed, I, kn- I, kn- I knew that the agony of the thorn was going to start all over again. The young man had presented with a parexy of unknown origin, and I was sent to see him. At 18, good-looking, well-built, and intelligent, he fitted well into what may be described as the Greek god category. And so I carefully examined him, felt the smooth enlarged glands in his neck, palpitated his abdomen methodically for any liver or splenic enlargement, and looked into his bright steel blue eyes, and I wondered if he had any idea at all of the way I felt about him. Did he know the waves of emotion he was firing in me? Was he conscious of the quickening of my pulse and the slight tremor of my hands? I doubt it. This is not the first time I've had to, to cope with such an internal crisis And God over the years has given me more than adequate grace to come through these trials without anyone being aware of the struggle within. I've been conscious of a homosexual trait since I was at secondary school, though it has waxed and waned throughout my life. And many times I've pled with the Lord to take it away from me, and perhaps one day he will. So far it remains as the most persistent and painful thorn I have ever known. My reason for writing this is not to elicit pity, however. It is because I believe that every Christian who means business with God encounters some kind of thorn in his life, which usually comes, as in Paul's case, to counteract that even more serious problem of spiritual pride. God has given me a keen mind and scholarships, prizes, and a fulfilling and successful series of good jobs have come to me with relative ease. If it were not for this hardship in another area of life, I often wonder if my ambition would have caused me to abandon the road of discipleship long ago. The blind George Matheson once wrote, My God, I have never thanked thee for my thorns. I have been looking to a world where I shall get compensation for my cross, but I have never thought of my cross as itself a present glory. Teach me the value of my thorns. I thank God that I have come to that place of thankfulness and contentment in spite of the pain and I rest at peace in the fact that God keeps us weak that the power of Christ may be seen us and seen in us and may not be obscured by our self-sufficiency. So if you're if you're a homosexual you can by God's grace repent of that sin and begin to move toward obedience to him and when they are failures he forgives. And we who are heterosexuals need to repent of our attitude toward homosexuals. You know, they are more, a a single celibate homosexual is no different than a single celibate heterosexual in our midst. They are learning by God's grace to control that, that tendency. And even those that are still struggling with the sin and failing, we need to separate as God separates between the sinner and the sin, God loathes the sin because of what it does to us, but He loves us. And so we need to welcome with open arms those homosexuals among us who are desperately looking for a way out and and who want help, and those who have been struggling with pornography, and those that have been struggling with with uh, petty theft and with addictions to gambling and addictions to pornography and 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 the other the other uh, obsessions and compulsions that that's set up in our lives, we begin to choose a, a sinful lifestyle. It may take years to be delivered, but they can begin to move toward healing and we can be, uh, we can be involved in that process. And there is hope. There is hope. Because Paul says, and, and if you're gay, I want you to listen to this. And if you're struggling with pornography, I want you to listen to this. And if you're struggling with a greedy, covetous spirit, I want you to listen to this. Paul says, such words, some of you. There is hope. The road may be hard. But he's a wonderful, forgiving, gracious, tender God. And he is available to us in our weakness to strengthen us. But he can only come to our aid when we're willing to look at the sin, confess it as sin, repent of it, and put it away. When I first began this series, I uh, I read this verse in chapter 6 to you I just ask you how, how many in this congregation would find yourself in this uh, list I'm going to ask you again how many of you find yourself here okay a friend of mine did this years ago in a congregation as I told you and another man who, who came to be a, a just a wonderful friend of mine came into the uh, congregation for the first time he wasn't a Christian at the time and he was sitting in the back of the room and When that question was asked and hands went up all over that audience, he said, "Man, these are my kind of people." (laughs) And I just—I have to say, you're my kind of people because we're all in this together. We're all struggling. If we think we're, we're not, we're badly deceived. We desperately need one another, and we desperately need that wonderful grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we have to be honest with ourselves, and as we look at this passage, we uh, we find ourselves there. But uh, as Paul would say, we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been set apart, and given a special place of honor in Your eyes, and we've been justified. We have been declared righteous. You do not see our sin. You see the suffering and the purity of your son who took our place. We would pray for the courage to face into our sin, to stop justifying our our wickedness. To call it what you call it. And to begin to move toward toward purity. To find ourselves more and more satisfied by our devotion to you, our love and worship of you. And we would pray that as as a family we would take seriously the the admonition to help one another as we see one another fall, that we would we would move in alongside and and reprove and encourage and exhort and help one another strengthen our resolve and our desire to, to walk with you. We would be known as that kind of fellowship who care enough to put our friendships on the line, to give ourselves to one another in these acts of, of encouragement and love. These things we ask in Jesus' name.